to lie out on my back under the thousand stars and think my way up among them, through them, and a little distance past them. But never will I agree to burn my words. So what if we groan? That's our noise. Behind, the world made of wishes goes dark. Ahead, if not now, then never shines what is. What is. You're listening to Burdens, Episode 7, The Helpless Man. Words especially when they are grouped together and repeated over and over again, eventually lose their meaning. They can get to the point where they're still familiar, but we don't even stop to consider what they mean anymore. This applies to all words, whether they're grocery lists or speeches that you helped your children write for school or Sunday school lessons, books that you have read, quotations from movies and TV shows, or the greatest words ever spoken. Words like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Words like, son, your sins are forgiven. Like, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even the greatest words, if we're not reminded of their meaning, lose sense, they wear thin. We never stop to consider them. We know them by heart and live as if they were never spoken. My prayer is that this story will serve as a reminder of meaningful words about mercy. If it accomplishes that, I'll be happy. Take a listen. The Helpless Man Samuel sat at the foot of his little girl's bed, but his mind still hovered over the pit where the man lay dead in black, pooling blood. I found a caterpillar today, she was saying. Caterpillars make a sack around themselves and live there for some days, and then they bite a hole in the sack, and then they crawl out of the hole, and when they crawl out, they are a butterfly. The sun bathed the pit in white heat. Dark, liquid wings spread from the man's back. His eyes met Samuel's. They were black, moth-like. Papa? Yes, I hear you, Ruthie. Where did you find the caterpillar? At the Simmering Lake. She meant shimmering. Her older siblings had named the lake after they visited it one night when the soft light of the full moon played upon its rippling surface. Ever since then, they begged their father to bring them back after dark so they could see the shimmering lake again. He made excuses saying it was too dangerous to visit the lake at night, but in truth he preferred to spend his evenings at the tangled net, so the children had to settle for the bright reflections of the sun during daytime visits. It's time for you to go to sleep now. You're going to wake up your brother and sister. 
Centipedes aren't caterpillars. I hate centipedes. The little girl shuddered. She changed the subject every time he mentioned sleep. A cool breeze lifted the curtains hanging from the windows in the room, but Samuel was suffocating. The moonlight by which he had been able to distinguish his daughter's dark, springy curls was momentarily obscured by clouds. The iron scent of rain hung in the air. Another wind roared in Samuel's head, a sound of angry screams. He desperately wanted to escape, to leave the foot of his daughter's bed and join his friends for a drink at the tavern, but she had imprisoned him with childish neediness. "'Are you afraid of centipedes?' she asked. The thump of the stone splitting open the man's head throbbed in his ears. The witnesses, former business partners of the accused, had thrown the first stones. He picked up a stone, too, and joined the mob on the rim of the pit where the accused lay pleading for his life, praying to God for deliverance. It was an ugly thing, but it had to be done. This was the way of justice, the law. Papa? The room was dark and still, but in his mind a sky ranged, bleached white by the angry ball of the sun. He tried to look down into the pit, but the dust-caked sweating bodies of the men in the mob blocked his view. They reeked of horses and rope. They were shoving him this way and that, and enraged cries filled his ears. Another voice whimpered up from the pit, Please! No! Are you afraid, Papa? Will you shut up and go to sleep? Samuel exploded to his feet, fists clenched, his jaw set in fierce consternation. It's the same thing every night with you, hanging over your bed and listening to nonsense about caterpillars. He trembled with rage and glared at the little girl who curled defensively under the ticking of her straw bed. Papa, you're scaring me, Ruthie cried. The other children stirred. Thomas began sobbing quietly. Sarah, the oldest, sat up and looked at him with eyes that seemed as if they were trying to discern the name of the demon lurking deep within her father's soul. Ruthie wailed unabashedly. Samuel roared at her. I said quiet! A hand that belonged to him, but which seemed to operate on its own, covered the girl's mouth and pinned her head to the bed. The hand was large, and she could not breathe. Her breathless legs thrashed and kicked the ticking off the bed. A furious curtain parted, and the children's mother flew into the room. She seized her husband's arm and tried to wrest it from her daughter's face. Samuel released his grip on the girl's mouth, grabbed the woman by her shoulders, and threw her against Thomas's bed, hard enough to send it scraping several feet across the floor. Thomas toppled onto the floor and took his mother's face in his hands. Mother, what'd he do to you? Samuel woke up to the nightmare spreading out before him in his children's room. The children wailed. His wife scowled at him. Mary, I... I was just trying. She wouldn't... Mary got up from the floor, hurried to Ruthie's bed, and gathered the sniffling little girl into her arms. She tried to soothe her by smoothing her hair and glared at her husband. Mary, listen. Go. Get out before you kill one of us, too. She turned to the task of soothing her daughter. The other two children diverted their eyes away from their father, whose figure loomed black against the window. 
The moon dipped low into its frame, a quiet voyeur who heard the children's cries for help and stole over to their window to peek in. I need a drink, said Samuel, trying to regain his composure. With that, he thrust his way through the curtain, snatched his cloak off a peg on the wall, and burst out, slamming the door behind him, not daring to look back at the stern eyes of his home, glaring orange with firelight. When Samuel arrived at the tangled net, Harim and Babai were already two drinks ahead of him. You look like a man who needs a drink, said Harim. He threw one of his fat hands up to signal the proprietor of the tavern to bring Samuel a beer. Harim ran a local fishing business which had done well enough for him to hire workers to handle all the manual labor while he tended to the books. The reduced physical activity had swollen his girth until it challenged the poor seams in his tunic. He said he preferred to stay in his old clothes rather than buy new ones because the discomfort he suffered in his tight garments reminded him to practice self-control at mealtimes. If that was true, he never heeded these reminders. Even now, a plate of chicken bones pointed at him accusingly on the table. His coarse red beard shined from the grease of the meal he had just consumed. Samuel dropped heavily into an empty chair beside his friends and stared silently at the empty space above their heads. The tavern owner dropped a tankard before him. He lifted it to his lips and drained it by half before setting it down on the table more loudly than he had intended, splashing beer so that it glided down the sides. Babai, the quieter of the two friends, shifted his eyes toward Harim, and a grin invaded the right side of his clean-shaven face, the kind a man makes when he feels uncomfortable but wants to give the impression he has everything under control. His hands were light and delicate, as if they had been framed by the thin bones piled on Harim's plate. "'Were you at the stoning?' Harim asked, twisting his round nose in one of his hands to stop it from itching. Samuel stared at the table. "'Not only was I there, I helped.' Babai adjusted his position in his chair. "'You mean you?' Samuel nodded. "'I threw a stone,' he said." He didn't add that he purposely missed the man because he was afraid to kill, or that he had run from the pit to a secluded spot behind someone's barn following the execution to wretch without being seen. The other two men had found convenient excuses to avoid the execution that day and did not question him further, although he knew they doubted he could really hurl stones at a defenseless man in a pit, regardless of the crime. "'I heard the charges. It was necessary.' said Harim dismissively. He leaned back in his chair and laced his hands together across his round belly. The witnesses were former business partners, said Samuel. Then they would know, Harim said, nodding. Or they had reason to do him in. What are you saying? Babai asked, raising his black eyebrows. That he was innocent? Samuel stared silently for a moment, at a ring of beer that had run down the side of his tankard and circled its base. He sighed. Don't pay me any mind, he said finally. The door of the tavern burst open, admitting an old man who was clutching his left shoulder and breathing heavily. It had begun to rain, and he wore an old camel hide that was so soaked it dripped onto the floor. He collapsed into the empty chair next to Samuel and the others, probably because he was looking for a warm place to dry out 
and they were sitting at their usual table closest to the fire. The three men looked at each other and then at the old man, who did not yet seem to notice their presence. He sat quietly for a moment trying to catch his breath, and then he tried to speak, but he fell into a terrible fit of coughing, lasting two or three minutes. Samuel thought he might be witnessing death for the second time that day. The old man hacked away, tears streaming from his eyes. It sounded like somebody beating tin with a hammer. Harim called for some broth, and somebody brought the man a dry blanket. After he drank the broth and warmed up, he calmed down a little. "'Much obliged,' he said. "'As you can see, I barely made it to this chair. I'm more ghost than man.' Another mile in that rain, and my flame might have completely flickered out. He smiled like almost dying alone in the elements was supposed to be funny, his tongue peeking out of the broken windows of his grin. "'What were you doing out on a night like this, old man?' said Bibai, who had a soft spot for old buzzards who were out on their own. "'I was a part of an envoy of three men,' he said. "'Now I'm alone.' The air required for this last word triggered another coughing fit, which the men were sure was going to be the end of him, but more broth and some slaps on the back brought the old man's indecisive ghost back for another run at life. The old man made another attempt at explaining his situation. Conquest looms large in these parts, he said, threatening the existence of this beloved land of ours. You simple farmers won't understand these things. No, you enjoy the luxury of scratching around in the soil, planting seed and watching things grow, while you exist in blissful ignorance, not knowing how close we are to the brink of extinction. I say this not to discredit you, my good man, not at all. The Lord prefers us to lead quiet lives, raising our families in charming pockets of idyllic tranquility. I'd say this world would be a better place if all men were such as you." But alas, the tempter whispers to men fashioned out of stronger clay, the kind used for modeling kings. These men are made for establishing justice and bringing peace into the lands over which the Lord has appointed them. But the tempter, stooped and patting about on his toes, turns them to conquest. Yes, he sniffs those grander mortals out and lures them with visions of greatness. He promises them they can rule the world, and few can resist his charms. I sit before you half dead because those who are supposed to be the strongest and noblest among men are, in fact, the weakest. The tempter has once again found another royal ear that will listen to his lies, and we are on the brink of war. As I said, I was a part of an envoy. We were commissioned by the king to deliver letters bearing his seal to two other kings ruling neighboring nations with whom he desires to form a coalition in hopes of staving off a war he knows we are not prepared to fight. The letters, which are no longer in my possession, contain the typical diplomatic ephemera, useless machinations of the lower kings whom God patiently suffers to rule the earth. We were the king's three most trusted men— I, your humble servant, the king's bravest soldier, and the highest-ranking priest in his service. We left at the new moon and were supposed to have delivered the last letter days ago. But, as is often the case, things did not go according to plan. 
Our orders required us to cross the plains and then climb the mountain range on our northern border, crossing the Sheba Pass, so we could make our way into Syria. With God's help, our first two days were relatively uneventful, and by the time we extinguished our second campfire, we were set to arrive at our first destination ahead of schedule. But on the third day, we encountered the strangest set of circumstances. The hot broth and dry blanket had renewed the old man. He had stopped shivering, and his eyes began to flicker. It was the third day, as I said, and we had already reached the Sheba Pass. When you are in high places like that, the world feels different. The air is thinner, it's quieter, and the light takes on a paler shade. It's hard to explain. We had dismounted our donkeys and were leading them, making the pass on foot, when we heard a cry of distress. A few more paces, and we discovered the source, a young man strapped to a large boulder. He was splayed out on the rock like a crow's foot. Someone had driven four spikes, two on either side of the top and bottom, into the boulder and attached leather straps to them for the purpose of binding this poor fellow to a rock and leaving him to die in the wilderness. He was in a bad way. His wrists and ankles chafed under the straps, and his body was drenched in sweat. His eyes looked too large for his head, and his cheeks sank into his face. Judging from his frame, he might have been a large man once, but his body had succumbed to the ravages of hunger and was thin, emaciated, and nobody around anywhere for miles to hear his cries. Had we not passed by, I am sure he would have died from starvation." if the jackals had not gotten him first. I have never seen anyone in so much trouble. I pitied him. My mind grappled for some reason to explain the sight before me. Who brought this man up here, and why? Whoever it was must have planned the scheme in advance. Otherwise, how do you explain the spikes and the leather straps secured to the rock? There could be no doubt this was a form of slow, torturous execution. What had this man done to deserve such a fate? Why didn't his enemies just kill him quickly to avoid the risk of someone passing through as we did and rescuing him? The three of us discussed it. No one could come up with a reasonable explanation. Just then, a gaunt young man shuffled up to their table. He was smacking and swallowing repeatedly while staring at the old man. The old man greeted him warmly. This is Pavel. Don't pay any attention to him, groaned Harim. He's moonstruck, crazy as a dizzy goose. He gave Pavel a stern look. Go on and bother somebody else, you nut. Pavel appeared to understand and shuffled away. The old man smiled as he watched him go. He returned to his conversation with the three men. Let me pose the question to you, he said. What would you have done? How do you think that man came to be strapped to a rock all the way out there on Chiba Pass, where no one could help him? Obviously, he fell in with the wrong crowd, said Samuel. He must have been a part of a gang that was hiding up there in the hills, and they turned on him and strapped him to the rock, leaving him for dead. That is similar to the story the man told us. He spoke with an unusual accent, similar to the people of the East who do not speak our tongue, and begged us to cut him free. He said he worked for merchants, delivering spices and rich fabrics from the east, 
and made long journeys requiring him to travel through the pass on his way to his destination. He usually hired a few guards to protect him, but this time he trusted the wrong men, and they turned on him, stole his goods, and strapped him down to the rock, leaving him for dead. Samuel leaned back in his chair, crossing his arms, and smiled with satisfaction. Just as I thought, he said. So, you cut him loose? It wasn't that easy, said the old man, dismissing Samuel's proposal by waving a hand in the air. We knew nothing about this man. He could have told us anything. How could we know we could believe him? Babai tried to guess. Maybe he was traveling alone, and he was embarrassed to tell you that he had tried something so foolish. Maybe he made up the part about the hired guards, and it was really bandits who surprised him on the way, stole his animal and his goods, and bound him so that he couldn't report them. I thought of that too, said the old man, but there is an obvious flaw in all of these explanations. Why would robbers go to all that trouble to stretch a man across a rock like that and leave him for dead? It just doesn't make sense. Robbers hiding out are in too much of a hurry to make grand gestures. They would have cut his throat and moved on. So what happened? asked Harim impatiently. Well, I couldn't bear leaving a man in that condition, so I started walking toward him intending to set him free. But the soldier snatched my arm and drew me back. What are you doing? We don't know anything about this man, he said. Wouldn't it be prudent to think about what we are doing before cutting him loose? He has survived this long. What difference will a few more minutes make? Of course, he was right. The old man lifted another spoonful of broth to his lips. The soldier, the priest, and I withdrew a few paces away, out of earshot from the man to deliberate over what to do. I maintained that we should have pity on him and set him free, but the soldier had another point of view. We are on an important mission, he said, a mission that can mean life or death to thousands of men, women, and children. We are trying to prevent war. We cannot jeopardize that by getting mixed up in this fellow's affairs. The stakes are just too high. Look, I would like to help him too. I'm not made of stone. I can see that he is suffering terribly, but we just don't know anything about him. But what harm is there in setting him free, I asked. Okay, let's say we set him free. Then what? We can't just go on our merry way. Even without being strapped to the rocks, he's too weak to hike down the mountain. He has no food or water. He'd die whether we cut him loose or not. We could give him some of our provisions and carry him someplace where he could recover, I suggested. And where's that? asked the soldier. There's not a settlement within fifty miles of this pass. Besides that... We only have enough food and water for the three of us, unless you've been stashing provisions I don't know about. We can't afford to split our rations four ways. We'd all be dead before we completed our mission. But we can't leave him up there to die alone, I insisted. The priest weighed in. Your sympathies are admirable, he said, but you are asking the wrong question. You want to know what we should do to help that man, but the question we should be asking is... Why would God allow a man to be put in such a situation if he were not evil to the core? The Lord is with the righteous and grants them good fortune, but his face turns against those who do evil. That man would not be in the predicament he is in if he did not deserve it. We did not strap him to the rock. 
His sins have chosen his fate. It's his own fault. We must not get distracted. We have a mission. Let us be on our way, lest we also fall into harm for ignoring the will of the Lord. The soldier and the priest both made sense, but I simply could not get comfortable with the idea of leaving that poor man to starve to death or to be torn apart by jackals. Maybe they were right. Maybe I was being soft and we needed to leave the man's fate to the hands of God, but I couldn't make peace with the idea without one last interview. I told the others I wanted to talk to him again and promised them I'd just ask him a few questions. They agreed to give me a little more time, but they had made up their minds and were ready to leave him behind. A loud crash came from the kitchen followed by obscenities. The men looked up and saw the tavern owner leading Pavel to the door, the shoulder of his tunic balled up in the fist of the owner's hand. Go on and bother someone else, he shouted. I don't need you slobbering all over my kitchen. He shoved Pavel out into the rain. The old man looked at the door after the tavern owner slammed it shut. Where will he go? Oh, don't worry about Pavel, Samuel said. He can take care of himself. He lives in an old shack around the corner from me. Get back to your story, old-timer, said Harim, irritated by the interruption. The old man hesitated, then continued. I walked slowly back up to the place where we had encountered the man. I didn't know what to say to him. His story seemed plausible to me, but I needed something to convince the rest of my party to rescue him. Lost in thought, I came near to the place where I thought the man had been strapped down, but no one was there. The man was gone, and there was no sign of the leather straps or the spikes, just a bare rock. Had I forgotten where the man had been? No, I was sure it was the right place. It had been this large rock next to the well-worn path in the pass. There could be no mistaking it. I called for the man, but I heard nothing, just the thin wind of the high altitudes blowing in my ears." I ran back to my party and reported the man's disappearance. Of course, they didn't believe me. Who would? Even I questioned whether I could believe my eyes. The three of us returned to the spot where the man had been, and everything was the way it had been before. There was the man strapped to the rock, helpless as a baby, in the same splayed-out position he had been in when we first encountered him. The soldier and the priest turned to me with looks of frustration, shook their heads, and muttered something to one another. The soldier drew close and furtively placed a dagger in my hand. If you want to show mercy, he said, drive this into his heart and put him out of his misery. Or don't. But whatever you decide to do, do it quickly so we can return to our mission. Time is wasting. With that, they joined the animals below the pass and prepared to depart, leaving me alone with the stranded man. I concealed the dagger beneath my cloak and stole nearer to the man, who didn't seem to be paying us any attention. He looked straight forward at nothing. He appeared to be half-starved. I had a few figs in my satchel and held one out to him, then felt stupid when I realized his hands were bound. I could have fed him as I feed my donkey, holding the fruit to his lips, but the thought made me uncomfortable, so I awkwardly returned the figs to my satchel. Not sure what to say, I led with the question that wouldn't stop ringing in my mind. Where did you go? Maybe he'd think I was crazy. So what? Either he was stuck to that rock, 
meaning he'd never be able to accuse me of being a senile, hallucinating old man, or he wasn't, meaning I was right, and I had bigger problems than someone accusing me of being crazy. What do you mean, where'd you go, he said. I've been here the whole time, strapped to this rock. No, I came back alone, and you weren't here. No straps, nothing. You had vanished. I know what I saw. Yeah, sure, he sneered. He glowered at me with the most menacing look. It felt like he was staring into the most embarrassing secrets of my soul, all my regrets and shame, as if he could see things only God knew. I could have sworn he was fighting a smile that was threatening to break out across his face. There's no telling how long he'd been out there strapped to that rock, exposed to the wind and the hot sun, starving to death. I could count the ribs on his sides. He was a pitiful sight, a mere husk of a human being. He was the one strapped to a rock, and I was free. Yet despite his physical debilitation, an inexhaustible energy seemed to burn in his eyes. He may have been the prisoner, but I was the one who felt trapped. Is it true what you told us? About hiring the guards who stole your goods and left you for dead, I asked. Every word, he said. Can you prove it? Prove it? I've got no proof beyond the predicament I'm in. I'm in the middle of nowhere, wearing nothing but a loincloth, strapped to a rock with no food or water. Why would I be in this situation if I had not been double-crossed? Look, I can tell there is a disagreement in your party over what to do with me. I know the soldier left you a dagger. He looked directly at the folds in my robes where I hid the weapon. If he harbored any doubts, I confirmed his suspicions by inadvertently moving my hand to its hiding place. I saw him hand it to you. Do what you've got to do. There's no hope for me anyway. Just don't leave me stranded up here to starve to death. Nobody else will come by. Drive that dagger through my chest and be done with it. You'll be doing me a favor. I have never taken another man's life. I didn't want to kill that man, nor did I want to abandon him in his time of need. But I could see the other's point as well. I didn't know this man. Who gets into situations like this? And what happened the first time I went back? Had I been hallucinating? I was beginning to think the whole thing was a bad dream. I drew closer to the man and pulled out the dagger, still unsure what I might do. The man looked right into my eyes, unafraid. Do it, he said. I couldn't decide what to do. I had to stop the deliberations in my mind. I took a deep breath and tried to turn off my conscious thinking. The wind howled in my ears, and I fell into a trance. How long? I don't know. Then I snapped out of it. Having been momentarily abandoned by my mind, my hands had made the decision for me. I was already in the process of cutting the second strap away from the man's foot before I realized I was setting him free. Harim broke in. Was he grateful? What did the rest of your party think? Were they upset with you? I haven't spoken with the rest of my party since. What? asked Harim, stunned. No sooner had I cut the last strap from the man's wrist than he grabbed me by the throat and thrust me against the rock, crushing my shoulder and rattling every bone in my body. I fell to the ground in a pile, unconscious. I don't know how long I was out. When I came to, he was gone. And the rest of your party? Samuel asked. 
They were already dead when we reached the pass, he said. A quiet feeling fell upon the table, and the old man stared at something in the fire. Then you were wrong to have set him free, said Babai, finally. I wouldn't say that, replied the old man. I could go back to that pass a hundred times more, and I would choose to do the same thing again every time. But the man was evil, Samuel said. All this time, and you thought I was telling you a story about a man strapped to a rock? This has nothing to do with him. His predicament and the circumstances that led to it do not matter. It doesn't matter whether he was telling the truth or whether he somehow staged that whole affair. Whether he was good or evil or an angel or a demon or the devil himself makes no difference. The story isn't about him. It's about the three men who encountered someone who appeared to be a helpless man on the pass. I don't understand, said Harim. Don't you see? There was nothing remarkable about that man or the way he was strapped to the rock. Each one of you have already collected your share of strange dilemmas in the thin air of life's passes, and you will, no doubt, encounter many more. There's nothing remarkable about that. Everyone sees helpless men. The truly remarkable thing, the story that's slightly different every time, happens within those crossing the pass. Some turn hard like the soldier and the priest and never make it through. Others choose mercy. The three friends didn't know what to make of this. Babai remained silent and listened thoughtfully while Harim and Samuel argued with him. Surely you're not saying you made the right decision, said Samuel. You took a very foolish risk that could have gotten you killed and one that cost you the lives of your companions. As I said, the old man replied cryptically, they were dead already. As for mercy, you are correct. Love is not sensible or safe, but that doesn't mean it isn't right. Mercy receives its rewards without seeking them. The old man had just finished saying this when the door of the tavern burst open, and two men stormed into the room, soaked from the rain that was still falling in sheets. The taller man wore a sword strapped to his hip. The rain streamed down his powerful shoulders like waterfalls cascading down cliffs, but if he was cold or uncomfortable, he didn't show it. He surveyed the room quickly with a trained eye, as if he had done this a thousand times before. The other was shorter, and the rain made him look small, like a dog after it swims in a river. His fancy robes were soiled and wet, but he looked too angry and self-righteous for the cold to have bothered him. "'You traitorous pile of cow's dung,' said the tall one. He was mad as a hornet. "'We've been looking all over for you,' he said. He was looking at the old man. "'Here I am, all in one piece,' said the old man, and with great effort he rose from the table, his body creaking like someone pulling open a rusty trap. "'Thank you for the broth and the company,' he said to the others. "'Peace be with you.' He walked past the men and through the door, while their glares followed him out into the rain. The soldier and the priest gave each other a look of bewilderment mixed with rage, and then exited the room as well. It was midnight before Samuel started home. Midnight. Such a misleading word, suggesting half the night was gone. There were still six hours until the sun exposed the world and its deeds again. 
Mary would still be up. She couldn't sleep when he lost his temper. He'd apologize, try to smooth things over. She always forgave him, but not before lecturing him about his drinking and temper. When Samuel came within view of the house, he saw her standing roadside waiting for him to round the bend. Was she angrier than usual? Did she intend on preventing him from entering the house? It had been worse this time. He was losing control, and he knew it. It's about time you got home, Mary said when her husband approached. I've been standing out here waiting for you in the dark. I didn't know what else to do. She sobbed into a handkerchief that looked heavy and damp, as if she had been using it for hours. Samuel timidly put his hand on her back, testing to see whether touching her might produce a negative response. She didn't react to him at all. The moon was full, and she looked broken in the pale light. He had never seen her like this. Lately, they shouted at one another if they spoke at all. Mary, I never meant to. He suddenly felt very ashamed. He wanted to say he was sorry, but words could not pay for what he had done. Anything he could think of to say sounded cheap and hollow, like another attempt to buy more time until the next outburst. She turned toward him and buried her face in his chest. His arms instinctively wrapped around her small frame. Her face was hot and wet against him. This was not what he had expected. Something had happened, something bad. Mary, he said, pushing her away and bending lower to look into her eyes. She stepped backward, but wouldn't lift her head. Tell me what happened. They're gone. Who's gone? The children, she cried. Who else? Her eyes tightened in accusation, her face white against the frame of her thick black hair, the bridge of her nose, long and perfectly straight, tilted higher. Her hand hung by her side, choking the handkerchief and probably wishing it was wrapped around Samuel's neck. Samuel ran into the house and flung back the curtain that hung in the doorway of the children's room to see for himself. He did not know why he did this. He knew they were gone when Mary had said it. When you're at a loss for meaningful action, you do meaningless things to fill the time. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw movement outside the window. Someone was out there, watching. Samuel ran to the window and looked out just in time to see the shape of a man's body rounding the corner of the house. An intruder! He burst through the front door and ran around the back of the house. Mary tried to intercept him as he passed. Samuel, why are you running? But there was no time to answer. He ignored her and squinted down the dark road. He could make out a figure running in a broken gate. Samuel raced after the man and caught up with him easily. When he reached him, he grasped him by the sleeve of his tunic. The action stopped the man he was chasing, but also pulled his body into conflict with Samuel's feet, and the two of them tumbled to the ground and rolled until they stopped in a pile at the base of the trunk of an ancient puckered oak tree. Samuel's ears rang, his head spun, and the nausea he felt the day before returned. Stiffly, he stood on his feet while his quarry moaned. He was pulling the man up by the collar when Mary caught up to them. Samuel, who is it? Did he take our children? Samuel held the man to the tree with one arm. His body was light and wiry, like that of an adolescent boy. He wore a hooded cloak that concealed his face from the pale moonlight. Mary was panting, still trying to catch her breath. 
Samuel, who is it? Do you know him? Samuel kept the man pinned to the tree while he pulled back the hood to reveal the intruder's face. It was Pavel, the moonstruck boy from the tavern. Pavel smacked his lips and swallowed. Pavel, why were you snooping around my house? Do you know something about the children? Pavel swayed weirdly against the oak and smacked his lips. He shook his head. Pavel, Mary said, her voice in a quaver. What did you do with them? Please, please, tell me where my babies are. Please, Pavel, please. I I saw them running, c- c- came to help, but I was t- too late. Too late. What are you talking about? Tell me what you've done with them, you imbecile, or I swear I'll beat the truth out of that scrambled head of yours. Samuel's grip tightened on the arm he had pinned to the tree. Honest, I, I don't know anything. A swift blow from Samuel's free hand crushed Pavel's slack face and spun it like a wheel on the axle of his neck. He took the punch without protest, as if he'd grown accustomed to this sort of treatment. Samuel struck him again in the same place, right below the cheekbone. Pavel squinted through the pain to plead to Samuel with his pale blue eyes. Please, I would never hurt your children. The next blow caught him on the chin. It was lighter than the first punches, but it may have carried more force because it came from the children's mother. The action caught Samuel by surprise. He looked over at his wife and saw that the compassion and human sympathy had drained from her eyes and had been replaced by pure hatred. The beating was making Pavel even more disoriented than usual. He feebly clutched at Samuel's tunic, more out of an attempt to stay on his feet than to fight back. Mary, get his other arm. Mary used both hands to pin his other arm down to the tree. It was a large old oak, but the trunk was still round enough to have bent Pavel backwards in this position. To Samuel, he looked a little like a butterfly pinned to display in some child's insect collection. Samuel looked at Pavel, who was bleeding from his lower lip and panting hard from fear and exhaustion. He didn't know what was wrong with him, nor could he understand why he had been looking through the children's window, but he also knew in his heart that Pavel was telling the truth. Let him go, Mary. Let him go? Are you crazy? He may know where our children are. What do you mean, let him go? I know it isn't sensible or safe, but that doesn't mean it isn't right. He doesn't know anything. Let him go. Samuel dropped the limp arm he had been pinning to the tree and nodded to Mary, encouraging her to do the same. She frowned and released her grip. Pavel looked back and forth at his tormentors with the eyes of a child asking to be excused from the table. But Samuel and Mary stared at one another as if they had forgotten he was standing there. Finally, deciding he should leave before they changed their minds, he ran down the road in the direction of his shack until he disappeared into the darkness. What will we do now? Mary asked. Mary, do you trust me? No. He deserved that. Look, I have an idea where they might have gone, said Samuel. Come with me. Forty minutes later, they stood breathless on the shore of the lake. The moon was high and full, and its alabaster light played upon the waves of the water's surface. The simmering lake, Samuel said, repeating Ruthie's mispronunciation. Mary nodded at him, hopefully. 
Samuel, I don't see them anywhere. It's dark and it's a big lake. Let's look around. Samuel and Mary began systematically looking for the children, working their way around the lake, searching behind the surrounding scrub, tall water grass, and white boulders. Samuel secretly worried that his hunch may have been wrong and that the children had been abducted. How did he know Pavel wasn't involved? The lunatic could have them tied up somewhere in that rickety shack of his. He kept these thoughts from his wife, who, driven by motherly devotion, was leaving no stone unturned, searching for her children. This might be his last chance. Samuel knew that he was really the one responsible for the children's disappearance. It was his rage that had abducted them. Their home was no longer safe for them, because he had allowed hatred to find the chink in his heart and fill it with its black decay. He had almost lost everything, but if he could get one more chance, he knew he could make it right. Suddenly Mary whispered, I hear something, and she stole toward a large clump of scrub where she had detected movement out of the corner of her eye. She made a signal with her hand for Samuel to wait. He understood and watched her creep toward the bushes. When Mary made her way around to the other side of the scrub, she found her three children huddled together, shaking from fear. Only Thomas looked at her, but he did not seem to recognize her face. We ran away, he said. It was a mistake. We thought we could be happy here at the shimmering lake. I want my mother. Everything is going to be okay now, Mary said. Mother's here. The boys still did not seem to recognize her. The other children continued staring at the ground, huddled up with their arms around their knees, fixed in a hypnosis of trauma. Tears formed around Mary's eyes. They didn't seem to be fully there. Mother's here, Thomas. The sound of his own name awakened the boy from his stupor. He shook his sisters. It's mother, he said. She's found us. The children emerged from the brush toward their mother, with looks of relief on their faces, but their smiles dropped when they saw their father standing on the shore, the silvery waves of the shimmering lake lapping behind him. Samuel could make out their faces in detail from the soft light of the moon, the same true light that shined from the sun during the daytime, but shining at an angle, and therefore bearable, tranquil, and free. He knew they would forgive him. They were children, after all, whose hearts had not yet been fired and beaten on the anvil of hatred and vengeance. He knew they would forgive him, and this weighed heavily on him, as they ran to him one by one at their mother's bidding. It sat upon him with smothering pressure as he embraced them and kissed their innocent cheeks, salty with tears they should not have had to shed. Samuel scooped up Ruthie in his arms and led his wife and the rest of his children back home, walking more stiffly now, lumbering and loosed, freighted with mercy's rewards. Thank you for listening to Burdens. If you like what you've heard here, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you want more information, visit DrewKaiser.com.